0: Grab your Bible, Daniel chapter 3 is where we'll be, uh, where we've come to uh, one of the more famous stories in the book of Daniel. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, or as some of you might call them, Rakshak and Benny. And that right there is the lasting impact of veggie tales. Um, I was looking at it this week, and all I could think about was a chocolate bunny. Um, And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're a little older than the VeggieTales generation, um, but maybe you hear these names and you think of a flannel board. Any flannel board generation in here? Yes. Any of you teach the flannel board generation in here? Yes. Praise God. Now, and some of you, you still have no idea what I'm talking about. You didn't grow up in church, and so you don't know what all of this is about. And I will say this, I actually think you're at an advantage today, um, because Uh, For those of us, if you grew up hearing this story, once this story lodges in your mind as a child, it can be very difficult to get past that first impression. Uh, Namely, that this is a a good religious story with the moral of obey God no matter what. Um, And and that's definitely in the text. But as I was looking at this week, uh, I'm looking at this and I'm going, there's so much more to this story than that. And, and I don't want to, us to miss the power of what God has for us in Daniel chapter 3. And um, so because the talking vegetables have really hijacked this story from us, um, I want to throw up a photo to kind of shake us awake to the explosive nature of this story. Check this out. Um, how many of you have seen this photo before? Um, if you haven't seen it before, let me just point out a couple of things. Uh, these are not soldiers in this image. Uh, These are normal, everyday people working in a shipyard factory in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, The year was 1936, and Hitler was in the midst of rebuilding the might of the German war machine and really promising this glorious future for the German people. And when he showed up at this shipyard uh, to oversee the christening of a new Navy vessel, uh, everyone working in that shipyard, the reports say, went nuts. Every almost everyone, everyone except for August Land Messer, right up there in the corner, standing with his arms crossed. And now we look at this picture today, and we all want to say, be like August, be like that guy, stand there with your arms crossed, stand boldly against evil, and for sure, I think, yes, we want to stand for the right thing, but I think what that analysis misses is that there were a lot of good and decent people in that crowd, I mean, is that so controversial to say today that there were good and right people living in Germany in the 1930s? Do you really think everyone in that crowd is thinking, let's kill tens of millions of people and cause a devastation that the world has never seen on this scale before? You think they've all lost their minds to that degree? Now, I would submit to you, there's a lot of just normal people in that crowd that got swept up into something that carried them away and this is what Daniel chapter 3 is about Daniel chapter 3 is about a current that's at work in Babylon that was at work in that day that is at work in Diablo Valley and it's at work in your heart that if left unchecked it can sweep us away and cause great and untold evil in our world do I have your attention All right, with that said, let's look at this very familiar story in Daniel chapter 3 and see what God has for us. We read this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. Uh, I'll save you the Google search. That's 90 feet tall by 90 feet wide. I do not know why Bible translators still leave the word cubits in there. Uh, He set it up on the plain of Dura in the providence of Babylon. Uh, Then King Nebuchadnezzar set to gather, and these are all the political leaders, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates. Uh, One of the commentaries I looked at this week says, we can't make sense of what all of these roles are. And and so I just said, okay, great. So politics hasn't changed in 3,000 years. You've got all these guys with all these fancy titles and nobody knows what they do. Um, So so Nebuchadnezzar gathers his court, all the people with all the big important titles, and all the officials come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providence gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. So it's more than just the leadership there. They gathered Babylon there, the people from all the nations they had conquered, including from the land of Jerusalem. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, Apparently there's a lot of Scottish people there. The, whole, the pipe wasn't enough. They had to get their bagpipe in there too. When you hear every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Um. If you were here with us a couple of weeks ago when we did Daniel chapter 2, you will remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, um, only it wasn't just a dream, it was really a nightmare, about a giant image. Same word that's in our text here. Only in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, it wasn't the whole image made of gold, it was a, a head of gold. And then there were various metals that made up the rest of the body. Really, uh, what this dream we learned was about was God telling Nebuchadnezzar his empire won't last forever. After him will come another empire and a succession of different human empires that will rule over the world. Uh, Really, what we saw in Daniel chapter 2 is God is warning Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, your empire, it's not going to last forever. There's a rock coming from heaven that's going to destroy all earthly empires and set up a kingdom of love and justice that will last forever. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do with that dream? Does he wake up and give his life to King Jesus and realize all the leadership that's been entrusted to him is really entrusted to be a steward of that kingdom? Nah, of course he doesn't do that. He wakes up and builds a 90-foot statue made entirely of gold. The metal that represents Babylon in his dream. The whole thing now is gold and he demands that people bow down and worship it. And that word worship right there, I would submit to you, that's what this chapter is really about. Uh, the word shows up 11 times in our text, and so just some Bible reading 101 for you. If a word is repeated that many times, this is the Holy Spirit highlighting, underlining, saying, pay attention to this. This is a chapter about worship. Um, and if, if you're new to church, uh, worship is something we talk a lot about here because uh, you and I were made to worship. Uh, We were made to, what that word means is, ascribe worth to things. Um, This is why when you have those great tacos, you want to post it on Instagram. We are worshipers. We are created to receive God's good gifts, like food, like relationships, like sunshine, like victory over the eagles. We're meant to receive (laughs) these good things. That God and amen there. We're meant to receive these and praise God and say, God, you're so good for making these things. That's what we're made for, and it's meant to fill us with a gladness of heart that you just saw in the room right there, and it's meant to give God glory, and it's where the earth is happiest when life is working like that. The problem is, we've all lost touch with our purpose, Um, rather than worshiping God as the most worthy thing, person in our lives, we have, in the words of Romans 1, worshiped creation rather than the creator. And so we take the stuff that God has made, in many cases, good things, like relationships, like work, like hobbies, like our physical appearance. These are all gifts that God has given us, but then we elevate it to the position of God in our life and worship that as if that were ultimate. And according to Romans 1, this is really the problem of humanity, that our hearts are out of order, that our love is all messed up, that we put too much weight on created things. And the Bible calls this whole process idolatry which is another way you could translate the word image in our text. So um, here's what's going on in Daniel chapter 3. Rather than worshiping and serving the creator of heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar has decided to set up for himself an idol. He has made this statue to be A tangible expression of the worship that he holds for his military power in the world. And so rather than worshiping the creator who just gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream, calling him to just that, Nebuchadnezzar stiffens his neck, he builds this statue, and he sets up an idol to worship that instead. And that's what this whole statue is about. And look, before you get too judgy with Nebuchadnezzar, let, let me just point out this. It is always easier to see idolatry in another culture than it is in our own. Um, this is why you can look at this text and look at the uh, big old important man with his big old statue and look at it and go, thank God we don't do that anymore. Um, but if you have such a shallow reading of this text, I think you're going to miss the power of this story. Um, There's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. uh, Listen to how he puts it when talking about idolatry. He says, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, and rituals. Everyone has its shrines, whether office towers, spas, and gyms, studios, or stadiums, where the sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportion in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige." What Keller is saying is the human heart hasn't changed in 3,000 years. It's just our expression of idolatry that has. Uh, Whenever you take a good thing and you elevate it to the position of a God thing, an ultimate thing in your life to where your happiness, your wholeness relies on you getting that thing The Bible would say you have set up an idol in your life just like our boy Nebi on the plain of Dura. And this is what Daniel chapter 3 is here to do. This chapter is an invitation to us to take an honest look at our lives and ask, is there anywhere that I'm worshiping an idol? Is there anything that the people in my life look into my life and go, thank God I am not so obsessed with that thing? Because what we see in this story is the results of idolatry, they're disastrous. They're always disastrous. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, the kazoo, the electric guitar, the drum set, I I just like to keep going here, Um, every kind of music. All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. These guys are suck-ups. The Chaldeans were the guys that were in the court in Daniel chapter 2 that couldn't solve the king's mysteries, and then Daniel and his friends got promoted above them. Well, now they're going to try to get back at those guys. Verse 10, they said, Hey, you, O king, didn't you make a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, okay, all the music, um, that they have to fall down and worship the golden image? Didn't you make that decree, king? And that whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into... A burning fiery furnace? Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well then, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Um, We see a few problems with idolatry here in the text. I'll just give you a couple. Um, Number one, it doesn't work. Um, Think about this. You have all the peoples from Babylon gathered together on that plain. So uh, Commentators will put the estimates between tens of thousands to most would say hundreds of thousands of people on the plane bowing to this statue. Um, and the band is playing. They've got the bagpipe and the pipe. They've got the heart and the tricken. Whatever that is. Like this is like an epic gap. This is like Super Bowl Sunday. I mean the people are out there. They are bowing. They're going Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. 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 It is a massive sight. And yet all of that is not enough for our boy Nebuchadnezzar. The second that he hears, there are three guys. Three guys. Compared to all of that, three guys. He hears they're not worshiping him and he loses it. He's like, call them in here. I need them to come right here. I I cannot rest until they will bow to my statue and make me feel very important. Do you see how shallow this is? Do you see how fragile Nebuchadnezzar's life is? That he can have hundreds of thousands of people bowing to his empire, and yet three guys not joining in ruins his day. But this is what idolatry always does. Um, Jim Carrey has some incredible insight on this. Some of you are like, there's a theologian named Jim Carrey. No, the actor. Ace Ventura has some incredible insight. Listen to what Jim Carrey said about this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. You hear that? It's not enough for Nebuchadnezzar. It's not enough for Jim Carrey. And it's never enough. Because created things can never fill the space that was made for an infinite creator in our hearts. And so the idols we look to, they always leave us wanting more and more. And it's never enough. And and so, number one, idols don't work. Number two, it makes you look silly. Okay, no, no, I'm just going to stick to the notes here. I'm only going to give you two things. Number one, idols don't work. Number two, it's not just that they don't work. But when these three guys threaten Nebuchadnezzar's idol, remember, these are the three guys at the end of chapter two that he's like, You guys are awesome. I'm really happy with you. I want to promote you. You guys are my boys. These three boys of his, the second they threaten his idol, there's great danger for them there. He says, I'm going to kill you guys. And like some of you are like, ah, he didn't mean it. Uh, keep reading the story if you're, if you're new. He meant it. He says, I'm going to kill you guys. And again, I would submit to you that this is how idolatry always works. Um, a pastor told me one time, and it's annoying how true this is. If you want to know what your idols are, pay attention to what you get angry about. Because you will be able to draw a straight line from your unreasonable anger back to the idols in your life. And it's true. Um, It's annoying how true it is. Like just this weekend, I had the sermon like partly done, not totally done. I didn't have this part done yet. And on Friday, we're going to our uh, daughter's school for a movie night. It's her birthday. It's going to be a grand old time. And I I go out to my car and I see a huge ding in my car. And I just got this thing. I'm trying to, for once, take care of my car. And so I was like, are you kidding me? They didn't even leave a note. What has gone wrong with this world? You would think someone would have kidnapped one of my children from the level of reality. Apparently. I don't know. I didn't feel like I was that. Un- you never feel like you're unreasonable. Ask the people around you. Uh, Karen saw this, and she was like, really? It's all going to burn. I was like, Dang it. Because, you know, like, there's nothing wrong with wanting to take care of your car. But the second you take a good thing and make it too important in your life, then everybody else becomes a fool and a moron that's an enemy to your flourishing. And the people in your life have to talk you down off a cliff and say, do we still want to go to your daughter's birthday thing? Or do you want to go and find the person who did it?" It's annoying how true this is, because not only do idols not work, but when our idols are threatened, we tend to lash out in unreasonable anger, and that anger causes so much devastation in our world. We can all laugh about the car, but we've seen it on a much bigger scale. And and, and so let's talk about that scale now. Um, Tim Keller kind of hinted at a distinction that another New York pastor named John Tyson makes explicit. Uh, John Tyson will talk about two types of idols to watch out for, heart idols and cultural idols. And what heart idols are, everything we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes. Heart idols are uh, the good things in our life that we elevate to the position of God things in our life. Things that we think can satisfy us more than God that we build our life and our happiness and our wholeness around. That's a hard idol. What a cultural idol is, is where a particular idol gets embraced by an entire culture at large. And what I would submit to you is this story is really about the danger posed by cultural idols. Um, Because, let's let's just be real, most people aren't going to idolize your job or your kid. You might, I mean, unless they become a famous athlete or a politician or something, then maybe people will idolize them. But like, hard idols, they they cause devastation. We need to deal with that one with Jesus. There's a lot I think God wants to do there. But where things get really tricky, where things get really devastating, are when people all circle around the same idol. Kind of like, say for example, a giant statue that represented the military might of an empire. Because see, this idol, it's not just Nebuchadnezzar's personal little heart idol. This idol became the idol of Babylon society at large. You had hundreds of thousands of people out there worshiping the might of Babylon. This is something that history tells us was embraced by Babylon at large, where the people in Babylon, they thought that they had a divine right to conquer the world. And this is why, as we saw week one in this series, they would go into other nations and other places and tear and burn the place down in order to build the glory of Babylon. This is why Babylon... Uh, They developed a, a, a reputation in the ancient world for the brutality with which they wouldn't just take over other people over. They would kill women and children. They would separate families. They would do this to terrify people so that people wouldn't dare fight back. All of this flows from this nationalistic idol that says Babylon's the most important thing in town. Mighty is the great golden statue that represents our nation living forever. When this idol goes from Nebi's idol to a cultural idol, it leads to so much devastation to where in the text, I don't want you to miss this. They built a fiery furnace with a chamber with a viewing window in it so that they could watch the people that mess with the idol of Babylon burn You look at that and you go, these guys are messed up. But what I would submit to you is this is how all of the great horrors and evil in our world have ever happened. And it's just because we are far removed from this culture that we can judge them and be blind to our own. All the great horrors and evil in history tend to come back to this. One group of people embrace an idol, and when another group threatens it, they seek to throw them in their proverbial fiery furnace. This is where the madness of idolatry ends. Heart idols, we lash out in rage... Cultural idols begin to get the power of an entire society behind it and have the power to wreak destruction and havoc in a way that we can look back on with hindsight and have horror. It's a good thing we don't have cultural idols anymore, huh? Um... Look, I I don't really have time to build this out, but I think this is obvious enough. Uh, I'm just going to show you a couple of pictures, and I, I think this will do it for us. Let's throw up the first one here. Anyone know somebody whose life has been ruined because they want to bow come June? Is that too real? And look, it's not just Pride Month. We as a culture have elevated sex to such a level where we have lost our minds, to where we can't even say that, like, we should just let kids be kids and not have kids exposed to drag queen story hours and being taught about sex from their elementary school teachers. Like, we, the second that you would say, hey, maybe we should just let kids be kids and save the adult conversations for adults, you get called a bigot, You get accused of being hateful because you won't bow to the idol. You won't get in line. And now all of a sudden that you are a threat. And it's done with such a vitriol, guys. I had all these examples where I'm like, it is done with such a vitriol that I think if King Nebuchadnezzar were here today, he would say, that's a little much. And if you think it will end with the loss of jobs... And cultural scorn and shame, you simply do not know your history. Um, Some of you feel like I'm picking on the left, so I am an equal opportunity offender. So let's throw up another image here. Now before you send me that email, this is not my commentary on everyone who voted for Donald Trump. So let's just get that stupidity out here. I'm not saying everyone voted for Trump. Here you are. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that I think there are actually a lot of people in our country who look at the sign. Hold the line, patriots. God wins. I think there's a lot of people in our country who have conflated their guy and their party with winning. They've conflated that with God winning. And that is the definition of idolatry. When your guy winning equals God winning, you've lost the freaking plot. God's building a kingdom that's going to last forever. Human empires are going to come and go. I'm not saying to be disinterested in politics. I'm saying leave the created things where they belong and give to God what God is due. Because when you take politics and you make that ultimate, when you take sex and make that ultimate, it leads to great devastation in our world. I think so much of the frustration and angst and evil in our world could be summed up in those two photos. Now, so here's what I know. Depending on what social circles you roll in, you're probably feeling defensive about one of the things I just said. Because here's the point. Cultural idols are seductive. This is the air we breathe. We are taught to see this stuff as normal. And so some of you are like, but what about the other guy? But what about this? But what about that? Because we are trained to see this elevation is normal that we can't even see it. This is how cultural idols work. It becomes almost like a current that we get swept up in, that it... If you, if you stay in that current long enough, it will carry you out to sea and take you places you never dreamed you would go. To where you lose family members over it, to where you begin to villainize the other side. And I'm telling you, if you're a student of history, this tends to, this tends to go in a direction that's a lot more than losing jobs and friendships over it. See, we can look at Daniel 3 and go, those guys had issues. Oh my goodness. I think if the Babylonians were here today, they would say this society is lighting itself on fire and it's well on its way to destruction. Because they can't let their idols go. It's always easier to spot idolatry in other cultures because idols are seductive. But I don't think we're so different from the Babylonians bowing down to their big old statue on the plain of Dura. And so I I get the pressure. I get why there's a lot of Christians today who are just bowing and beginning to make excuses and say things like, well, you can't shine in Babylon if you're dead. You can't shine in Babylon if you get blocked on Facebook, so I'm just going to put up this profile picture to let everyone know I'm tolerant. You can't shine in Babylon if they won't let you preach the Bible, so we're just going to ignore and look over some stuff and try to take over. And so we begin to make excuses for our idolatry, and hear me, I get the pressure. I get why Christians are compromising, because the the line goes, if we're going to shine for Babylon, just got to bow. Notice Nebuchadnezzar's not angry that they worship Yahweh. That was chapter two. He is angry that they won't worship his idol. No one in this culture will ever care that you worship Jesus on Sundays. They just expect you to bow the knee to their God on Mondays. And the second that you're not willing to do that, all the talk of tolerance, right out the window. I get the pressure to bow. If anything, I think this chapter explains it. But what this chapter also does is it shows us that you don't shine in Babylon by bowing and going with the flow, but that you shine in Babylon particularly by resisting the cultural idols and the pressure to bow to the things that society at large says kneel before. Let's read the end of the story. We're going to come back to that because that response is incredible. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered that the furnace be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. They're they're thrown in with all their clothes because there's no trial, there's no due process. It's just, this is happening immediately. We're throwing you in there. This society is unraveling. Verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So no due process. Now the guys that are working for the king and buying into the idol are being sacrificed in rage to sacrifice these guys. This society is unraveling. Verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, they fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, true, O king. He answered and said, but but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So then Nebuchadnezzar, he came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego servants of the Most High God. Some interesting words to come off his lips. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they all gathered around, and they saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of these men and the hair of their heads was not singed, and the cloaks were not harmed, and there was no smell of fire that had come upon them. At this point, you're like, God's just showing off. I can't even go to a campfire without walking away like that. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people or nation that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the providence of Babylon. Um, we called this series Shining in Babylon because that right there is what this whole series is about. That though our culture is dark and filled with idols, God is greater than our culture. And he has a power greater than the flames of any fiery furnace. And so as we entrust ourselves to him and refuse to bow where it is socially convenient for us, then our lives begin to shine the light of a better way like these three guys. I mean, it is incredible to me that the very guy who set up the idol that became the cultural idol at the start of the chapter that put his nation above God, his reputation, his fame above God, ends the chapter by saying, "Um, I had that wrong. I need to come down because God is more high. God the most high. It's fascinating to me that the one who kicked this whole thing off by the end of the chapter is the one repenting, saying, I've changed my mind. Babylon's not great. God is the most high. He ends by worshiping and blessing the God of heaven. Now now look, uh, it's messy. Some of you are like, "That's an understatement. He threatened to kill people that don't worship the God of heaven." Okay, uh, y- You don't get totally sanctified overnight, people. Walking with Jesus is a journey, but like, God is at work in this man's story. And there is more work to do. We will definitely see that next week. But the point is this. The man who made the idol and said, no God can save you from my hand, ends the chapter by saying, I've had a change of mind and a change of heart. God is the most high, and we should all worship him. Do you think he could do something like that in our day? Um, I'll be real with you. I think it is the only hope our nation has. If God would come in power like he did in the days of Daniel, to in the very heart of darkness, to the very people erecting and setting up these cultural idols, would be the very ones to praise his name and say to everyone else, I got it wrong. He's the king. He's the one. He's the Lord of lords. And let's give our lives to him because he is most worthy. I believe this is our only hope in I I will say this, um, God has a history of doing things in days like this that look like there is no hope ahead without intervention. This is where God does his best work. Again, if you know your history, you know America has a history of revivals where great social evils have been overturned and overcome by the power of a new worship that sees a God in heaven. And so we can let everything else go back to created stuff so we don't have to be enemies with one another. This can happen in our day. We could be on the edge of another great revival. And I'm telling you, it all begins with normal, everyday disciples of Jesus Resisting the idolatry of the culture around us, both left and right to shine the light of God's power in our day. Revivals don't typically begin with some charismatic leader, certainly not in our country. It has begun with normal, everyday disciples of Jesus getting together and pleading with him for some better way and resisting the easy, social, I'm going to give in, saying, no, there's a God in heaven. I'm going to plead to him and see something in our day. This can happen here as we resist the cultural idols of our day and plead to the God of heaven. Do you want that? All right, that's awesome. So, so, so what I want to do in light of that is I just want to give you three quick lessons from these guys on how to resist idolatry. We, we talked last message about prayer. We need to keep talking about prayer, but particularly Daniel 3 is about how do we resist idolatry long enough to talk to him? How do we resist idolatry enough to not be swept away and to miss out on what God wants to do in our day? So I'm going to give you three lessons on how to resist idolatry like a boss from verses 16 to 18. From this incredible response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'll make this quick, don't worry. Some of you are like, you're just getting to your points, I'll make it quick. Number one. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to kill you unless you bow down and get into the furnace. They say this. <laughs> we have no need to answer you. Just take that one word at a time. We. Some of you are like, you said quick. No, okay, stick with me. We. We. Something we have seen throughout the book of Daniel so far is that these guys are never alone. That uh, when they get dragged away into exile and are tempted with all of this awesome food and everything around them, they become vegans for Jesus together. It's never Daniel alone. It's never Shadrach alone. It's never Meshach alone. It's never Abednego alone. It's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some people are like, where's Daniel in this Chapter. Ask in the Q&A. Ask online. I don't have time. There's a good answer for that. But they're always together. What we see in this book is they go vegan for Jesus together. Um, When they're all told we're going to kill you because the king had a bad dream. Sorry. They get together and pray. Together. Here they resist idolatry together. I hope you're seeing the theme. It is this. If you are going to shine in Babylon you've got to do it with Jesus loving friends. Because this stuff is seductive. And it's so easy to get sucked in. And one of the ways that God exposes the idolatry in our life so that we could deal with it is through relationships with people who love Jesus and who love us enough to speak up. And to help us process our life without judgment, in conversation, because we know they're for us. Um, a pastor friend of mine says, a friend is someone who, um, let me get this right. I wrote this down. This is so good. Oh, where is it? He says, a friend is someone who knows where I'm really at, who speaks the truth and I'm listen, speaks the truth and I listen, and he loves me anyway. A friend is someone who knows where I'm really at, speaks the truth and I listen, and who always loves me anyway. Do you have someone like that in your life? Praise God for those of you who said yes, because without that, I don't think you have any shot of resisting idolatry in Babylon. Because I I said earlier, it's easier to spot idolatry in other cultures than your own. It's also easier to spot idolatry in other lives than your own. Um, It is easier for the people I do life with to spot the idols in my life than it is for me to spot that. And it is easier for someone from another culture to spot the idols in our culture that we can't see. And so when you invite people into your life, you're taking your blinders down. And and look, it takes real relationships of love and trust to be able to speak up and to poke one another in the idols. But where we have those kinds of relationships, I think we've got a shot of standing. If we stand together like these guys, we have no need to answer you. And by the way, if, if, if you don't have those kinds of relationships and you'd like to develop some, this is what our gospel communities here at Fair Oaks are all about, being a community like this. And so if you're not plugged in with one, see me at the info desk after service. I love to get you plugged in with a group of friends that will do life with you and help you as you seek to follow Jesus in this valley. Uh, number two, don't be a jerk. Um, I was really struck this week by the words of we have no need to answer you. Like Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. I'm like, my, I would have had several responses. Probably the first would have been, how's that dream of yours going, Nebuchadnezzar? Were we helpful at all in that? Um, what they say is, hey, we're not going to argue about this. We know there's a God. We know it's not you. And so this bowing, it's not going to happen. But we don't want to make this a whole thing. We're not going to argue with you about it. You do what you got to do, but we have no need to answer you. We don't want to argue about it. I was like, that is incredible. And look, so I point this out because um, I am seeing a lot of Christians today and I find this in myself if I'm just being honest with you. I am seeing a lot out there and in here that is so focused on the madness of the idolatry around us that sometimes all we ever do is picket and protest. And at one level, I just said, I get it. I found this pull in my own heart where I'm like, if I was just someone and I pulled up my social media, would I say that's a good news person or would I say that person is crusty and frustrated? And and so maybe you can relate to this. Um, If you do, don't feel attacked. I get it. It is no fun being called names. It is no fun to see people mock your values and more important than that, mock the God that we love. I get that it ain't fun. It probably wasn't fun to have Nebuchadnezzar say, I'm going to kill you guys. But I love you enough to tell you what God's been revealing to me. If all you're known for is picketing and protesting, it is exhausting. And more than that, I think it reveals something about the state of your heart. Because if you really know the God who made the people who are calling you names and seeking to take your job from you and seeking to brainwash your kids, if you really, really knew the God who created them and you were convinced he would take care of you, that he's got you, that he loves your kids more than you do, if you were really convinced of that, I think you would probably be less bothered by all the madness out there think I would be. And look, I can see where you're going. This doesn't mean that you act like a coward and bow and just give in. But it does mean that I think rage is a cheap substitute for courage. True courage isn't a response to evil. It's a response to truth. Which is really at the heart of what these guys say. Um, So let's get to number three. Have friends. Don't be a jerk. Because number three. Um, Whenever you talk about idolatry, the the question always gets asked. um, So once I see the idols in my life, how do I stop worshiping them? Um, And a lot of people will try to, this is what you're going to be tempted to do. A lot of people will try to stop worshiping idols through their effort. By trying harder. By going, oh, well, pastor said that on Sunday, so I'll try not to stay so long at the office this week. I'll try to not care so much about politics and watch less of the news. I'll try to look in the mirror less and care less about how I look, but I will tell you this from experience. If you, if you are able to do it, you will just replace that idol with another idol because you haven't addressed the root issue. And more importantly, you probably won't be able to do it because it's the end of January, New Year energy is wearing off. And you'll find yourself falling back off that wagon very quickly. The only way idolatry actually loses its grip in our hearts is to get a glimpse of something greater. And that's what these guys have here. They say in verse 17, hey, the reason we don't need to argue about this, the reason we're not going to be jerks about this is because we're not so much focused on the furnace, You do whatever you got to do, throw us in or not, we're dressed and ready. But our God, we know his character. He's for us. We know his power, so we know he can save us. We know his character, so we think he probably will save us. We don't know his sovereign will. And so even if he chooses not to, we know a God that is so good, we're not trading him for that. Because that's not God. And this is, and we know him. So you do your worst to us, but we're not trading him for that. Sorry, Nebuchadnezzar. Number three, this is the point. And I think this is the main point of the whole chapter. Worship the real God, and you won't be vulnerable to the madness of idolatry. My prayer is that that would be your main takeaway. Not to focus so much on the idols in your life. We probably need to talk about it. But we want to get past that to say, how is Jesus better? How is Jesus greater? Why is he worthy of my worship? Because without that third point, these guys aren't going to make it. It's as they say, we know our God's power. We know his character. We don't know his plans, but we're going to trust his heart because of the first two things we know, that they're able to stand in their day. And I'm telling you, it's the key to us standing. And not only standing, but standing with the type of joy and life that flows from us so that like Jesus, we could be described as a people that didn't come into the world to condemn but came to bring life. And so, look, I can't let you leave this story without seeing Jesus. Um, so let's just end with this: Nebuchadnezzar he throws them into the furnace, and just when he thinks he's won, he sits down in front of his little window to watch them scream. He goes, "Wait a second! Didn't we bind them before we threw them in? Did somebody forget to bind these guys?" And they're like, "No, King, we for sure bound those guys." He's like, well, why are they walking around so unburdened and free? What's going on? And wait a second, didn't we throw three guys in? Why do I see a fourth one? And why does that fourth one look like a son of the gods? What's going on here? And what's going on is Jesus showed up. Doing what he always does. He shows up and he frees these men from their bondage. I I hope you can see this. You don't have to be spared of the fire to be free. Right there in the midst of the flames, by the power of God, they are freed from their burdens. They are freed from their bondage. And they're having a great time walking around in there. And it, it frustrates Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, why don't they look like they're suffering? They're not suffering because Jesus is there. And the life that is coming from him is stronger than the flames around these guys. And look, you might look at this story and say, well, why didn't he spare them of the flames? But but this is what Jesus always does. He always allows unthinkable turns in the story to bring about a greater good than we could ever imagine. Daniel chapter 2, he shows Nebuchadnezzar his power by interpreting a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it. And so in chapter 3, he lets his people be thrown into a fiery furnace so that he can show an even greater magnitude, his power, so that this thick-headed guy would start to get, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he is good, and he is for us. And so he lets his people be thrown in there. But here's the point. He's in the fire with them. He doesn't use them as pawns. He's showing Nebuchadnezzar's power, and he's showing these guys his power you think they didn't walk out of the furnace walking a little taller after this? And I think it's the same in our day. Look, I don't know if we're going to be thrown in furnaces. Certainly we're at least getting the social version. Now, I don't know what's coming for us, but I know whom I have believed in. I believed in the Son of God who eventually did come to earth and put on flesh. And he laid down his flame-defeating power on the cross to die in my place for my sin. And on the cross, this son of God experienced the flames of hell. He took on the judgment due me for my sin, not for some made-up fake hell that culture can produce, the actual real fire of judgment that was coming for me. He stepped in the way, and he took it upon himself, so that he could raise me up and say, you get a new life. The flames have no power over you. So what are you down about? You're an idolater, bad news. In Christ, you're forgiven. So come on and taste the forgiveness. Come on and taste the freedom. Have your bonds removed this morning. This is the good news of the gospel. And this is why we come together every worship on this plane on Risden Road to worship around this table where we remember that good news, where we take the bread and we take the cup together. This is the high point of every service, where we take the bread and the cup together to remind us that our God is for us, that our sin has been paid for, that nothing can stand between us and him. And so we can walk out of here unburdened and free and whole and full of life. And the reason we do this every week, some people are like, why do you do communion every week? We do communion every week because the pressures out there are real. And I don't know about you, but I need the reminder to taste and see that he is good and better than whatever is out there. And so that's what we want to invite you to do is we respond to this message. I want to invite you, if you've trusted in Jesus to be the one who covers you, that makes you whole, that makes you free. Come to this table. And when you take the bread and dip it in the cup, remember, and not only you remember, what scripture tells us is as we take of this together, the Holy Spirit is present with us and it does something to us where we get a little bit more of his grace towards us. And so as we begin our week-long response to this message, I wanna invite you to come forward as the band plays. And taste and see that he is good, so that we could walk out of here singing and worshiping more fully for his glory and for our joy and for the good of this valley. Let me pray for us. We'll do just that. Jesus, thank you for being stronger than Nebuchadnezzar's flames. Thank you for being stronger than any force that would stand against us. Thank you that there's nothing left to condemn us if you're for us. And so Jesus, I pray that you would just come in power right now and make that truth real to us. Would you send your Holy Spirit as we come to your table and remember your broken body and shed blood. Would you do something to us that we can't do in this moment and that is help us to see you more clearly so that we could respond with lives of worship that would lead to our joy and your glory and the benefit of everyone around us. We need you, and so we ask that you would come in power, reveal our hearts, make the gospel real to us so that we can go out of here a people of joy and full of your life and your love. We love you. We give you praise in your beautiful name we ask.